This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. May these words help and not harm. May they clarify and not confuse. May they self-liberate, leaving no trace of me. This is our fifth uh, study session, Understanding Our Mind, and um, we're in verse eight. So let me just go, go into it and then uh, bring up a few things and then we can discuss and as always you know just raise your your hand your digital hand if you have questions so here and we've touched on this already Tignahan is speaking about the three modes of perception right so things as they are suchness the realm of representations and the realm of mere images and you know when i when i read this again a couple of times, you know, he, the way he's speaking, the realm of representations and the realm of mere images, they kind of get a little bit mushed together, right? And so um, I skipped ahead and I, and I looked at when he's, he's speaking about these in a little more detail. And the way I'm understanding <clears throat> the difference between these two is that in representations, you need mind, right? You need mind consciousness. Uh, in, in order, we've talked about this, in order to process what you're seeing, what you're experiencing. And you need manas. I need to know that I'm the one experiencing. And so later in the book, Thich Nhat Hanh says, manas always sees as self things that are not self. And so that's why I'm understanding, that's why that's a representation, right? So seeing you right now on screen, even if I see you in person, mostly what I'm seeing is my representation of you. I'm not seeing you directly because I'm filtering what I know about you and I'm filtering what I see, what I hear, etc., through mind consciousness and through this sense of self. And I'm immediately imputing that same self, sense of self on you right? You're over there, and I'm over here. And therefore, now we're having a conversation. And that is only part of the story, right? The moment manas comes in, you cannot see something directly. And this is why Zazen is so important. Because there's very few other settings, tools, modes of being, which will allow for the dropping away of manas, for the quieting of manas, right? Enough that you'll be able to see something directly. Is that, is that clear? If it's not clear, please let me know. Yes, Norm, go ahead. So I'm just not sure what mana is. Okay, so manas is the seventh consciousness. So the first six are the six senses, right? Including mind. 
So mind and mind consciousness is the sixth sense, the sixth sense consciousness. Manas is the seventh, basically the equivalent of the ego, the sense of me. So it's not just that I'm perceiving your image. I'm perceiving your image. So Thich Nhat Hanh, at one point in the book, has this great analogy, which I have brought up in the past, that the storehouse consciousness, a little piece of it, turns, looks at itself, and falls in love, like the myth of Narcissus. He's looking at his image, and he's so beautiful that he falls in love with himself. That's really what the self is. It's a little bit of storehouse consciousness looking at itself and being like, that's pretty cool, <laughs> right? And so, and we grab onto it and then we navigate, of course, we navigate the world with it and through it. So in very, very few instances, do you, Norm, perceive the world directly? You're perceiving it through normness, through the filter of norm. That's essentially manas. Anybody else? Okay. Now, the realm, the realm of mere images, dreams, an image like this image that I'm seeing of you right now, like a photograph, like a visualization. But, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, images can show us things as they are, which explains why in Vajrayana, uh, visualizations are so um, frequently used. So you can take an image, and he says, in fact, you can see an image of, an, of a mountain. And if you're really entering into this image, if you're really studying the image, if you let the self drop away and merge into the image, you can see the mountain directly. So there's nothing wrong with images. In one sense, there's nothing wrong with representations. It's just when we don't understand that this is just an image. As he says at one point, it's like taking a photograph of a photograph. That, that well-known saying, you know, the finger pointing at the moon in Zen is basically saying, you know, that anything we say, anything that I'm talking about right now is just pointing at the moon, is not the moon itself. Now, as many of you know, Dogen said, you know, so there's in that similar vein, you know, painted cakes cannot satisfy hunger, right? A picture of a cake is not going to satisfy me. And Dogen says, actually, painted cakes do satisfy hunger. And I think what he means is what Tignahan is saying. When you see the painted cake directly, when you understand what the cake is in its cakeness, then you are satisfied in a different way, in a fundamental way, right? In a deeper way. And with somebody else, I had been reading the teachings of Wang Bo. And, um, you know, this, what I was saying about the importance of, of Zazen, he says it very nicely. He says, just like empty space, the mind is clear, transparent, and formless. The samadhi of no thought, which nothing can sway, is the true appearance of the Buddhas. 
right? The samadhi of no thought, the deep meditation of no thought, which nothing can sway. No thought, no distraction, no disturbing feeling. Fundamentally, that samadhi cannot be swayed. He says, and this is the true appearance of Buddhas. Now, this doesn't actually mean that then all of this is just fake. It just means there's more to see in order to realize, well, what is the true appearance of Buddhas? Jitsuko. Um, so what about, what is death? Like the samadhi that, can, the samadhi that cannot be swayed. Um, so what happens when you die physically? Does that mind continue without being conscious of itself? I mean, the samadhi that cannot be swayed even by death? Well, I mean, you won't know it, right? So Jitsuko will no longer be there to, to see or cognize or, or anything. But yes, the sutras say that there is a consciousness that continues. You just won't know that it's you. So how does that explain rebirth, you know, in the Tulku lineage? I don't know. There's, there's some inconsistencies there. But in a sense, I mean, you know, for our purposes, I don't think it, it matters. So, so the, the, the whole notion of rebirth does imply that there is something that continues. Otherwise, it would just be a death and then would be a new, a new beginning, right? It is, it's just that it won't be Suisse who knows, oh, I had this past life as X, Y, or Z. But there is an impulse. There is consciousness. There is an impulse. And there's a desire to be. And that is what propels me into my next rebirth. Now, is that samadhi of no thought? Well, I guess you have to have the thinker, right, for the thought to disappear. I mean, let's just say that nothing, that there was no um, sentient beings. At all? Yeah. Okay. I mean, so is this, um, is everything else still existing without manas? You've asked that before. Um, I think I think what I'm hearing you say is, do things exist without mind, without some sort of consciousness? Is that what you're saying? I think so. I think the Buddhist answer would be no. Okay. Mind is what we see and what is. But it's not mind is not the brain, and that's when it just gets a little. Like, what is mind then? And, and at one point, Tegnahan says, mind is the content of mind. You cannot separate it. He says that, right? Not Wangbo. I, I believe it's he who says that. Mind is the content of mind. Um, and then you could say, okay, well, little mind, mind consciousness, gets in the way of direct percep perception and it becomes a representation. But then you have a koan, 
a koan is a representation, right? It's a, it's a, I was going to say a made up situation. Maybe it wasn't made up. Maybe some of them actually happened and somebody recorded it, but it's, it, it is a representation. And yet you're taking it and you're sitting with it so deeply that you can, in a sense, move through the, the, the photograph to get to what it's actually capturing. You know what I mean? So here is another example of using an image and using a representation to get to actual, to fundamental reality. You know that story of, um, you know, Picasso, I think he's on a train and a man says to him, recognizes him and says, why do you always paint women in that way? I mean, they don't really look like that, you know, with one eye over here and another one over here. And, and the guy is like, well, do you have a picture of your wife? And so the guy pulls it up and shows it to him. And um, Picasso says, well, that's your wife. She looks awfully flat. So it's like that. In his case, you know, he was deconstructing the reality and then putting it together in a slightly different way to express something. In a sense, if we could do that with our minds, that is, that is what we're, that is in fact, kind of what we do. And so, so I just want to stress once again, that there's nothing wrong with the fact that we're talking about the teachings, the fact that we have these made up situations, you know, in cons and stuff, you know, they're, they're, they're all, they're trying to cut through to something that lies beyond. And then he brings up the 18 elements. Are you clear about what the 18 elements are? No, you're all shaking your head. Okay. Six uh, sense consciousnesses, the six senses and the six sense objects. So form, my cup, that's one element. Um, eye consciousness is the second element. And the third element is, uh, let's say, eye conscious. Oh, the eye, the actual sense itself, right? So the three of them are coming together to form cup. You take that through the other five senses and you get 18, right? Sound, ear, ear consciousness, smell, uh, the, the actual, let's say, a perfume, um, smell consciousness, etc. Is that clear? And that's the totality. I mean, that is how we perceive the world. So, uh, you know, Dido would always go through this thing. You take any of these things, I take away the cup, the cup doesn't exist for me. I close my eyes, the cup doesn't exist. I'm in a coma, something happens to my brain, I have a stroke. The cup is there, my eyes are open, I can't see it, it doesn't exist. So all three things simultaneously are needed to create this reality called cup. Yes, Nina. Where I get lost is when he speaks about our images of loved ones and people. Yes. It's that 
is much harder for me to mesh with this whole um, mind consciousness because he seems to be saying two contradictory things. One is that if we don't look deeply, we won't see those that we really care about. Mm -hmm. We don't look with the eyes of understanding, we look with this kind of object dual, dualistic thinking. On the other hand, he seems to, it seems to be impossible then to understand the truth of another person or really enter into relationship. Yeah. <laughs> because if you are, are if, if you are just, so we say on the screen, then when our Zoom ends, you disappear from me and I have only my perceptions of, you know, aversion or, or attraction or, or mm -hmm. all these. Exactly. So what's the antidote? Well, then, then he refers to intuition on that page 56. It says that when we have a strong intuition, our mind consciousness is in touch with the realm of suchness. Right. Intuition is a form of knowing that is not based in thinking and imagining. And there I'm really lost. <laughs> so let me, um, they're slightly different things, but I think they're, they're connected. Um, so it is true that it is um, not impossible, but that it is very, very difficult to see the reality of another person. Even somebody whom you believe you know deeply and love deeply or very close to because of exactly what we were just talking about. Because most of the time, and especially because our minds are moving so quickly that really what we're seeing is, is, a, is a superimposition, right? Is our image of that person. And he gives that example of, you know, sitting in a car, you know, with your, with your partner, with your wife, and not talking to her because you feel like you know her already. And so I think this happens more and more the longer we are together, if we stop investigating, right? If, if, we, if we don't take seriously what he says, or if we don't, just don't think about it, we don't know it, what, can, what tends, and you see this all the time, what tends to happen is, is couples stop seeing one another because they do think, well, I, I know this person, I've lived with them 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. You know, like how many times have you watched a couple sitting in a restaurant not talking to one another or looking at their phones or, you know. And so, so to me, you know, what this is saying is that what's required is to constantly return over and over again, first to a place of not knowing, first and foremost, and second, to really want to investigate who is this person right now, not my image of them, but who are they actually to, to keep, keep striving to see as clearly as we can. And you have to be willing to be disappointed. You have to be willing to be shocked, you know, or surprised. You have to be, you have to be willing to be uncomfortable that you might not know this person whom you think you, you know so well. You know, and that's scary, I think, for most of us. So 
And yet he talks about this quite a bit, you know, because he's written quite a bit, right, about relationships and about love. And uh, it, it, he's so he's so tender, you know, when he says that he 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 he. I remember him doing this interview with Oprah, and she was asking him about this, and him him saying something like, you know, you look at your at your partner or your lover, and you say to them, dear, um, something like, I'm here for you, and you can see Oprah just Oprah's brain just kind of doing this thing like, that's it. I mean, you can see all the, <laughs> the thing going through her face. It's like, uh, really? I mean, that, that's it? And she says something, she asks something, you know, like, but, but what if that's very difficult or something like that? And he's just, you know, how he is. I mean, he's just very matter of fact. He's like, no, no, but you just really meet them. You know, you just really say to them, you hold their hands and you look into their eyes and you say, my dear, I'm here for you. He's so earnest, you know, he's so sincere. So, and, and I don't think he means that I'm just here for you. Like I'm, you know, I'll, I'll be your friend. I'm, I support you. It really is that. Can I meet you over and over and over again? The intuition part. I mean, I think he's, he's, remind me what page that is on. He's related. He's speaking of. Um, it's a page of. 56, the right. long second paragraph at the, at the last three lines. Yeah. Yeah, so he says, when you have a strong intuition, your mind consciousness is in touch with the realm of suchness. So it's that moment where, once again, you know, if you're, if you're able to suspend the, the, the discriminating thought, there's, a, there's something else that comes through, right? Again, therefore, the importance of, of sitting, you know, because you're not using your, your brain when you sit. You're using, you're, you're accessing your gut. The reason we place our hands near the hara and we focus on the hara is exactly that, to get out of your head and into your gut. I think I've mentioned before, I will wake up uh, first thing, you know, in the morning, like the first thought that I have will be a very clear thought, usually about something that I'm you know, grappling with, mulling over. Or sometimes if I take a nap in that moment that just as I'm coming out of sleep and I have a very clear intuition. And I just, I just attribute that, that that's a point in which my mind is at rest. It's relaxed, but it's also open enough that it's allowing the image to come through. So anybody would like to add anything to that or ask anything about that? Okay. And so he says, you know, quoting Thich Nhat Hanh, meditation is to look deeply in order to arrive at reality. First, the reality of ourselves, and then the reality of the universe. Now we know this. Right, we know this, but do we know it? You know, at those times when you don't feel like sitting, see if you can remember this. It's not that just that you're sitting there so you can be a little calmer, so you can be a little more focused, so you can be a nicer person. It's so that you can see reality. You can arrive at reality. First to this reality, and then the reality of everything, the whole universe.
that's why mindfulness, you know, the whole uh, tricycle has this article on the mindfulness wars. I, I, I haven't read it yet. I really want to read it. But that's why it's not enough. Because to, to, to extract that, you know, and then to use it to be more productive at work and, you know, to have a better relationship and all of that. I mean, it's nice, but it's not this. And this is really what Buddhism is pointing to. This is where liberation is, can be found. And then he opens the ninth uh, verse, the ninth chapter with a very powerful question, I feel. What conditions do we need to be truly happy? Right, what would you say? And then he asks, and can you be happy if you don't have them? What did you think when you read that? Yes, Karen. I thought of the, uh, the vow that says um, about desires, may I be, um, I'm, now I'm forgetting how it goes. Uh, yes, I, may I be yes. And, put an end to them. And, and I thought, okay, that's, that's grasping. And I think when you, when you quit grasping at things, you become more settled. Um, and that's part of what I think you were talking about. Just you have to get rid of that sense of um, grasping at desires. Um, so how do you understand the conditions that you need in order to be happy? Yes, Jitsuko. Well, I mean, I just want to quickly. OK, so there's the cup. And then there's the I, and then there's I consciousness, and that's all you need. But then there's a discriminating thought, which is, I am not the cup. Yeah, and there's also, a, this is such a beautiful cup. And then there's I want, the, okay, so there's, so there's, there's the cup, there's I consciousness, and then there's the I, and then I'm not the cup, and then either I hate that cup or I want that cup. Right. Um, okay. I mean, just look at it, please. I mean, isn't it a great cup? I got a plate and I was thinking, well, next I should get a bowl. Oh no, I got a bowl and then I got the plate and the cup. I'm happy you oh, have that stuff. Plate. Oh, I'm happy. I'm happy. It brings me joy and happiness that you have that stuff because I'm you. <laughs> you having it is just like me having it so that makes me happy <laughs> okay remember that the next time your neighbor is blasting music or something okay <laughs> so what conditions do you need to be truly happy jess you know when i read this i thought i don't know i've been wrong a lot <laughs> About, you've been what a lot? You've been wrong a lot about that question. So, so I don't know, actually. Well, that's honest. <laughs> yeah. Anybody else? Yes, 
Nina. I just wanted to second Jess. I had exactly the same reaction and my reaction was also happiness would not be, be able to, being able to let go of grasping at and sort of always strategizing about conditions. Because that would be being truly in the moment of, of reality and suchness. And in fact, in the times in my life, when I look back, when I've been truly present, like utterly, truly in the moment, often when my children were really little, I remember everything, everything, everything I tasted, smelled, the vividness that's just you know, one day in Amsterdam, it's like, it, it's just there. And that's so beautiful because there were no, I didn't create that. I mean, I guess I did, but yeah. I think it's letting go of not knowing what the conditions are and just being in what is. And did that make you happy, being fully present? Mm. Yeah. It's not sustainable though. <laughs> uh, let's see, Brian. I don't know if this, if it's that much different than what um, Nina just said, um, but what comes to mind for me is, is just simply not wanting things to be different than they are. And so it, it, it feels a little like sometimes I, I ask, I have to ask myself, like, have I come to a point in my life where I'm like set, settling for things, just being sort of mediocre in life? But, but, but I don't, and maybe I am a little bit, but also at the same time, I guess I've seen the traps of like what I've associated with happiness in the past and like sort of that like ecstatic happiness that is, um, is, ripe for is ripe for some sort of crash so i feel i feel i like the word ease i like that word from the you know male beings be at ease from the carnia metta sutra i feel, feel like that is the is where i feel the best it's where i feel sort of something feels right and stable and that's when I'm not wanting things to be different. Yeah. Uh, Liz. Yeah, uh, it is a pretty loaded question. And I will um, honestly say that I haven't spent enough time thinking about this, but I will give it a shot. <laughs> um, I think uh, certainly simplifying things in my life would make me happy. <laughs> I'm trying, and I would like to spend a little more time being in a quiet space where I can, I can work that out a little more. <laughs> um, but yeah, having a having a sense of purpose as well. But I think you know, obviously, I, I appreciate what Nina and Brian just said about um, you know being present and having a sense of ease. But unfortunately that's not life. <laughs> so I guess my uh, happiness to me would be being able to meet problems and situations, even though they're difficult, 
with a sense of uh, calm. Um, Can I ask you? You mean having a sense of ease and presence is not life? Is that what you meant? Well, it can be at times, but it's not. It certainly isn't. For in my experience, going to stay that way. <laughs> it's great okay. to have when you have it, but uh, you know we have to, we old age sickness and death, we have to deal, you know? And so how do we meet the struggles with, with a mind that can be flexible and roll with, with what comes, you know? Okay. Yes. And, and Nina said, you know, it's not, it's not sustainable. So um, I think that's a place, that's a place to look like, why, why is that? Uh, Norm. Yeah, <clears throat> I have a list of things that make me happy too, but I believe that um, we don't need anything to make us happy. You know, we sit, we quiet everything down, and I believe that to the extent that I'm able to do that, I'm happy. Just so happy out of nothing, yeah. Okay, so how do you explain uh, what I emailed you earlier that when I get the email that says that you were on the Zoom early in the morning, and so let me give a little context, which I was gonna bring up later anyway. Um, Norm and I were going to sit together early in the morning and I did it once <laughs> and then haven't been able to do it because I had no power um, and wasn't sure if I could actually get up early every day but I did get up early but I had no power but I get the email that he logged onto zoom uh, at five in the morning and that made me really happy and so my question to you, Norm, is why does that make me happy? Oh boy. <laughs> I don't think, I mean, that making you happy is fine, but you don't need that to be happy. You, 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 need, to, you need your sitting yourself more than you need me sitting to make you happy. Okay, I would agree with that. It still makes me very happy though. Well, being, I mean, it's easy to be happy in this group. I mean, I'm just happy every time we get together. I hate when somebody's missing. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So things make us happy, but I don't think, I think we can do it on our own. Yeah. Yes, Marguerite, I, you, you, yes, yes. I think you have something there, um, Marguerite. Yeah, I'm gonna piggyback on that. And maybe it's the idea that I don't really know what happiness is, but I know what felt really good. Maybe that could be happiness and it was fleeting. I had sat, I always take fast brisk walks. I take them in the same fashion all the time. And this time, this week after sitting, I was, taking this walk and I thought, oh my God, 
everything is just right the way it is. I had that fleeting instant of somebody might have said it okayness or just like nothing was lacking. I mean, I, 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 I didn't want for anything. I wasn't even thinking. I know that was part of it. It was just this feeling of, wow, just wow, wow, this is just right. And, and I, I, what was the condition? I mean, I, I sat more and then I did this thing. I don't, I, I don't know. How could I replicate it? I don't even know. I'm not even going to think about that. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing and see if it happens again. But it was such, it was really short lived, but it felt, just felt spectacular without, I don't, I, I don't know if I'm, whatever, I don't know if you could say it made me happy. It just made me feel wonderful, relieved, like, like this has never happened before. This is so, where did this come from? That was it. Yeah. James, just so you know, we're not always this peppy. <laughs> Today seems to be a particularly good day. But, you know, you're both bringing up uh, an important point. You know, I said, you know, the importance of Zazen, you know, to arrive at reality. And also because it, it, it's not accurate to say that it leads to joy, but it, it does, you know, and it is one of the, uh, it's not called factors, it's one of the I forget what the term is, but, but you could say one of the byproducts and one of the characteristics of deep meditation is joy, is bliss, is rapture. So there is that too. And I think this is a, I, I know it is a loaded question, but I think it's an important question. It's a question that I've asked myself a lot because um, we can think that we're happy and not really be happy, you know? And we can do things that feel, you know, meaningful and um, fulfilling and stuff and still not feel happy. And so, so I think, you know, the, and, and, and there's, there, there are teachers and there's certainly writers, you know, who have questioned, you know, the, the, the need, you know, or the pursuit of happiness to begin with, you know? It's, and it's not that you're always going to be uh, you know, happy, happy, joy, joy. I think happiness, the way that Thich Nhat is speaking about it, or joy, the way that the sutras speak about it, is, is something in particular that does not depend, as, as you are already saying, on, on the thing, on, uh, it doesn't depend on anything. It arises in certain situations. And so, no, you can't really replicate it. I think it's kind of like inspiration. You can only open yourself to it and allow it to happen and, and receive it gratefully when it's there. You can't really make it happen. Jitsuko, were you gonna say something? Okay, let me just get this straight. So all that, you, all that really needs to happen in reality is cup, eye, <laughs> and eye consciousness, right? Yeah. That's all that, that, that's all that you really need. And, and I think for myself, I feel happy when that's all I have, when that discriminating thing of, I am not that, or I am this, 
I think that's where the unhappiness starts for me. So I think meditation really helps me with just having those three things, eye consciousness, eye and cup. And that makes me happy. I, I feel like that's where the happiness begins. And, 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 and I don't even know if it's happiness until later on when the eye consciousness, when, when I, I consciousness comes back and is like, oh, I am happy. <laughs> That's kind of where the downfall starts. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so, so there is a kind of mm, spontaneity or, you know, perhaps as Tignahan even says, a ripening, right? So seeds ripen at different times, different varieties, and ripening and changing. I mean, and joy or happiness is just one way that they can ripen. They can ripen in a, a lot of different ways. Um, but joy is one of them, you know, so that when the conditions are right, certain seeds will, will bloom and will manifest as joy. And, you know, the, 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 the importance about the time, I've, I've spoken about this before, is that you can't force it. You can't make it happen, as I said. You can only be watering the seed, tending to it, creating the conditions for the thing to then bloom. And so, you know, when people would get all bent out of shape in, in their practice because somebody else seems to be, that's the, that's the nice thing about doing this on Zoom. You know, you can't really be uh, competing with one another in, in your mind. I hope you don't because what would you even be looking at, you know? So, so when people would compare each other's practices, it, it, and that I would say is like comparing apples and elephants. It has nothing to do with anything because each one of us is going through that process of maturation. The, the varieties is that consistency, right? That if you, if you plant an apple seed, you, you get an apple, you don't get an orange. We've talked about this before, which seems so obvious, but then why are we surprised? when we're planting the seeds of, of dissatisfaction or complaining or negativity, and then wonder why moving through our days is so difficult. And then the seeds of ripening and changing is what allows for transformation. I was reading another, another talk you know, that was talking about the fact that impermanence exists, the, is the fact that emptiness exists means that things will can always change means that we can always transform. <laughs> Actually, the example that Song Sarkiense Rinpoche gave was like, if I don't have a BMW right now, I don't have to be bummed out because that's impermanent. It will change. At some point, I could perhaps have a BMW. <laughs> Think about it also in terms of you know, liberation. Okay, right now I'm not liberated, but I have the potential have the potential to be because things are in fact empty of fixed nature and they're impermanent. And then Tignahan had this interesting thing. I don't know why you thought of this. The way we are now is the sum of action A plus action B. And did you see that little comment where he's like, okay, if your coworker does a good action and then does a negative action, the result would be kind of like an average of the two. What did you think of that? I remember reading that before and being like, really? Like an average? Like just putting it on a scale and it just, I mean, maybe. But what, what do you think of that? 
or, or you. You do something fantastic, wonderful, and then you do something and it's shitty. Do you think that then your, your karma, the result of that would be just a, an average of the two? Yes, Nina. I don't think it, the suttas seem to say that, you know, one moment of anger destroys, you know, all the a lifetime of merit. And we know that from neuroscience that human beings retain negative, you know, negative impact in relationship more than they do positive. So you have, you know, this thing of putting credit in the bank by treating your spouse really nicely so that the next time you get angry, I guess maybe that's the average, <laughs> that's the transactional. It just seems very transactional to me. Yeah. And, and the other thing that I'm, I'm picking, I love Thich Nhat Hanh, but at the top of page 59, what he says about, please write down some conditions for happiness that are available to you right now. Could you organize your life so that you are able to recognize them when they're present? Try to arrange your life to make these conditions for happiness available. And then he says, when there's something you don't like, how can you make it more acceptable? So to me, that just creates tremendous anxiety. It seems like a self-help kind of thing of, you know, you're, you're not perfect and you could use a lot of improvement and get, get your life in order. So I find it very contradictory. And, and also, if you find something unacceptable, how can you, how can you make it better? Um, you know, it's, it is, I guess, it's ser the serenity prayer, but there's, there are a lot of contradictions in this chapter for me hmm. of striving and organizing and strategizing and Maybe it's the, it's the language. I think the, the way that I read that, um, because of what I know of, of Thich Nhat Hanh, I thought of when he speaks of, you know, creating the, the right environment, right, for, for practice. And he, and he speaks of Plum Village um, as, this, as this place, you know, that is generating the, 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 a particular kind of energy and a particular kind of karma in the world. And so I was thinking about it in that, in that sense that he's saying, you know, really look closely at your life and see, can you, as he often says, can you water the seeds first with mindfulness, water the seeds in your life that are wholesome, that are, that are affirming, you know, that are going to help you and are going to help others and really work. And I think he's, you know, he's talking to, I mean, this is bourgeois suffering in, in my mind, you know, he's talking to people who are like many of us, you know, who can be, um, Take care, Jess. Who are uh, dissatisfied, etc. I don't think he's saying to somebody in an abusive relationship or in a war zone. Well, just you know, figure how you can be happy in in this situation. I mean, as we know, you know, I mean, he 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 was deeply deeply involved in in activism. So so I hear that more, you know, for for that for the bourgeois kind of suffering for the for the dissatisfied mind in us. He's saying, look closely and look deeply, and can you can you turn that around? Essentially, I I don't hear him say at all, resign yourself or 
or just stay in a situation that would be harmful. Sarah? On the idea of averaging your action A and action B and then, you know, somehow cutting into the middle, um, I would prefer that the more recent action is weighted more heavily than the earlier action so that we can account for, you know, growth and learning and uh, evolution in our decision making. Yeah, so I was surprised, you know, when, when I read that, I agree with, with Nina, it sounded a bit transactional and it, it, it may be a little simplistic also. So I'm not sure um, how he meant it, you know, or if it was just one of those things that it could have been elaborated on and, and he didn't, but I, I agree. Um, and then at the end of the, the chapter, he goes through the three realms and the nine stages. So all the realms of existence. Uh, James. I, I was just gonna say to that point, I, I think that not all actions are weighted equally, but I don't know if it's the most recent either. It's, it's the ones that are the most impactful to us and to others that are weighted more heavily and mm -hmm. probably the ones that we spend more mental energy on. Yes. Weighted more heavily. Yeah. Um, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. And and perhaps, you know, the the, the factor of 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 time in that I think uh, you know that the weighter the action and the weighter the the weightier, you know, the, the result, um, that there's also that possibility of it changing, you know, with, with time. And so, you know, I mean, I've said before how the Buddha said, you know, anybody who claims to understand karma is, is deluded because it is so complex that nobody really is able to say, well, this is because of this, even though the sutras themselves say, well, if you are good looking in this life, or if you have health, is because you did something good in a past life. And if you have some sort of illness or, um, you know, maybe that is one way, it's a, it's a framework with which to explain why certain things happen to certain people and not to others. But the fact is that we can't really know. And, and that is, it is still, a, a, in my humble opinion, a reductionist view, you know, and you certainly would never want to blame the person for, for their, their negative experience, because um, how, how is that skillful? So, so I think in terms of looking you know, at, at, this, at the seeds, it's, it's, it's always remembering that there are certain conditions, as he keeps repeating over and over again, individual and collective, right? Uh, individual and societal, historical and ultimate. And within that, we have a choice. We have a choice about how, what to do with what we're encountering moment to moment. Ah, we just got through two verses. Well, <laughs> I guess that's okay. Um, so we'll pick it up. We'll pick it up in verse 10 next time. For more talks, to get more information about Zuisia's upcoming teachings, 
or to join her email list, please visit vanessasvisegoddard.org.